Welcome to All Fired Up. I'm Louise, your host, and this is the podcast where we talk all things anti-diet. Has diet culture got you in a fit of rage? Is the injustice of the beauty ideal getting your knickers in a twist? Does Fitspo make you want to spitspo? Are you ready to hurl if you hear one more weight loss tip? Are you ready to be mad, loud, and proud? Well, you've come to the right place. Let's get all fired up. Hello, wonderful people. Thank you for joining me for another episode of All Fired Up. I'm so pumped to bring you this particular topic. But before we get started, there's a couple of things I wanted to chat to you about. Last time, I let you know a little bit about the Fast Track to Health trial, which is a research investigation that's running here in Australia out of the Sydney Children's Hospital and Monash Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And I mean, basically, it's a pretty hideous trial because they're looking at starving children for a period of 12 months. So these are teenagers uh, aged between 13 and 17 years old. And the plan is to stick them all on Optifast, on weight loss shakes for a month, and then starve the rest of them um, in two groups, one on a quote-unquote calorie-controlled diet and the other group uh, on a so-called intermittent fasting diet where uh, every, well, three days out of the week, uh, these kids will be only allowed to eat somewhere between six and 700 calories a day. And this is going to go on for a whole year in a very critical period in these teenagers' growth. And Anyway, I have started a protest against this because I just think it's a pretty shit idea, as does, it seems, the rest of the eating disorder community, which is amazing, and all of these eating disorder organisations have spoken up against this trial. And we have a petition that started too on change.org, and I have 19,000 signatures, no shit. Everyone knows this is a bad idea, except it seems the actual researchers who are busily uh, defending this trial. I'm urging everyone to please sign the petition that I started because the more signatures I get, we are listened to, basically, and the higher up we can go because, believe you me, uh, I know that my podcast releases have been a bit sporadic of late and that's because I'm busy advocating on behalf of these poor kids. So please help me if you care and if you, uh, as outraged as I am about the potential risk to these kids, not only of developing an eating disorder, because we know that basically 14 years old is the highest risk time for a kid to go on a diet in terms of developing an eating disorder. So yeah, good on you, fast track researchers. So not just the eating disorder risk, so many reasons, so many things are not being done correctly in this trial. People are not being told about the risk of eating disorders, for one. People are not being told about the likelihood of weight regain, uh, which, as we know from all of the weight science research, will happen. And the investigators know this too, but they're not telling parents or kids uh, about that particular side effect. Uh, And all of the damage that dieting does to people's metabolisms and to people's psychological health. And let's look at the big picture here if a child is being told your body is wrong and the only way you can be healthy or belong is to shrink your body 
I'm sorry, but that's a pretty fucked up message to give a teen and call me radical, but I just believe that we should be leaving teenagers' bodies the hell alone, letting them grow up. It's hard enough as it is, right, in diet culture without subjecting kids to starvation diets along the way. Okay, off my soapbox now. If you want to help, sign the petition. Thank you so much. Sign it and share it because, as I said, we really want to get more and more signatures happening and we're, I mean, I can't believe 20,000 almost. So let's see where we can get to. Where can you find the petition? So you can go to Facebook and look for the Untrapped Facebook page, so at Untrapped Community, and I have pinned the petition to the top of the page so you'll be able to find it there in Facebook or you can go to Instagram, find me there uh, at untrapped underscore AU. That's the Instagram handle. And you can click on the link in the bio and sign the petition there. And I really encourage everyone, if you're signing it, to share it and pass it on because it, this, this just has to stop. So on to other stuff, my free ebook. If you haven't already got it, why not? It's an awesome research resource. It's Busting the top 10 myths that are flying around about weight loss. It's called Everything You've Been Told About Weight Loss is Bullshit. I co-wrote it with the wonderful Fiona Willer, the um, amazing dietitian from Unpacking Weight Science. So this free ebook is a wonderful resource because it's basically showing you all the science on why weight loss dieting sucks, why it's literally a trap designed to get people sucked in and also presenting research and evidence that there is an alternative way, the anti-diet way, that is just really lovely, effective, non-stigmatizing, and let's face it, downright liberating. So you can get the free ebook at untrapped.com.au. It'll just pop up and you can download it and share with your family, your friends, particularly anyone in your life who is a health provider, your GP, positions because they're really the ones who need to hear this message. So please go and grab that free ebook. And while you're nosing around the Untrapped website, you will see what Untrapped is all about. I mean, Untrapped is the program that I run uh, that supports this podcast. So I really need members to join the Untrapped community in order to keep the podcast going. But also, I mean, the main reason I started the Untrapped community is to join people together who are liberating from diet culture in a massive online community. And we have, you know, well over 100 members in our Untrapped online community. It's just fantastic because people are always sharing and supporting each other and there are ideas flying around left, right and centre. It is really hard to recover from diet culture and to kind of untrap from all the crap when we all live just so stuck and surrounded by people who are still in that diet thinking bubble. So if you want something different, if you want a really awesome course that has been designed by 12 very fierce anti-diet health professionals and you want to get to know a whole group of just rocking, awesome, fierce people, then consider doing the Untrapped online course. Find out about it at the website, untrapped.com.au. So now on to today's episode. For a very long time, I have wanted to do a show all about pregnancy and everything that impacts on pregnancy thanks to our old buddy diet culture. And it has been difficult for me to think about who to invite on to address such an incredibly important topic. 
And I'm really proud today to present two people, two, two guests who are absolute powerhouses of just genuine awesomeness. So today I'm lucky enough to have uh, Hilary and Dana from Be Nourished. So Hilary and Dana are like literally the best people on the planet in my humble opinion. I know I say that a lot about everyone I interview, but I genuinely adore Hilary and Dana. I spent some time with them because I did a course that they ran in the States about becoming an embodied practitioner. So Hilary and Dana together are Be Nourished and they they do a lot of fantastic work with training uh, people in the anti-diet approach and particularly in helping therapists do their own work on their own stuff. And they're just really incredible people. So let me tell you a bit more about them. So Hilary Kinnaby is a professional counsellor, an educator, a speaker, a writer, and an activist, and an all-around awesome person, as I have mentioned. And Dana Sturdivant is a nutrition therapist, a facilitator, an educator, a speaker, a writer, and an activist. So these women are very passionate about all things anti-diet, have a huge sense of social justice, uh, and can really tie together everything that we're talking about from a very big picture perspective. And I believe that that's how we have to approach this topic of pregnancy in diet culture. Hilary and Dana um, were brave enough to go and do a presentation at a medical conference talking about the issue of pregnancy, which is what got my brain thinking about let's invite them on and have this wonderful conversation. So without further ado, I bring you this incredible exchange between me and Hilary and Dana. So Dana and Hilary, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having us. We're yeah. glad to be here with you finally. Uh, it has been a long time, <laughs> but you've been on my radar. So tell me, what is firing you guys up? Well, you know, we've been thinking that we just spoke at a conference this year about, you know, about weight stigma and with healthcare professionals around birth. So gynecologists, midwives, and we know this is the question that comes our way a lot from our clients, you know, people looking for resources on how to deal with the enormous amount of weight stigma people are encountering when they're pregnant or when they want to become pregnant or when they're giving birth. Mm. So we're pretty fired up about this. Oh my God. I would have given my left leg to actually be there listening to that presentation at that conference because I know how fierce you guys are and how needed this kind of discussion is in the area of like maternity and maternity care, pregnancy, birth. Yeah. So I'm really glad that you went there. So what, what was your, you did a presentation on weight stigma in pregnancy? Yeah, we, um, we were asked to come to a conference, mostly with midwives, and the, the conference centered around body positivity while addressing risk. And that was almost, and it wasn't quite verbatim the title of the conference, but it was like, how do we be body positive and address risk? And unfortunately, we were the last speakers of the day. And <laughs> had we been the first speakers of the day, um, it maybe would have given the audience a lens to view the rest of the day through. Yeah, We were the first people to say weight stigma at the conference. And so it wasn't even a lens that people were viewing 
things true. It was kind of, it sounded like it was more like, how do we be nice to our fat clients, mm-hmm. to our fat patients while they're pregnant and still help them understand that they're at a higher risk, but to do it in a way where we don't shame them. That was kind of the gist. Kind of the gist right? Oh yeah. my God, that is a mind fucking a half. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's not a lot of examination around how, you know, weight stigma overall is impacting outcomes in health, you know, that's just not making it into, well, it's not making it into data hardly anywhere. And especially in the literature we looked at for when we were preparing to speak at this conference, it's like just not a concept yet. There is some acknowledgement that there's, you know, that weight stigma impacts health, but then it's like, they think that in some of this research, they're framing it more like weight stigma causes people to cope in unhealthy ways. And that's the problem. And that mm-hmm. leads to more medical risk. And, and, mm-hmm. and while that may be the case, it's, we have enough, we know that weight stigma itself is causing harm. Yeah. In the U S there's some, there's new, there's increasing talk about this concept of weathering, um, particularly around the experiences of black women and birth and how um, it's acknowledging that there's this cumulative effect of insidious trauma, you know, this day-to-day trauma associated with bigotry and oppression that impacts health. And that's Mm. got nothing to do with how people cope with it necessarily. It has everything to do with what it's like to experience um, chronic stigma and chronic stress and how that impacts our health. Um, Folks read about that more they can google weathering but they can also read like serena williams story about her birth i think she mm. has a documentary she made this year that four-part series she made yeah it was an hbo documentary mm-hmm. I, the name is escaping me serena actually yeah it was great was good so I'm hastily scribbling down to definitely watch that show with Serena and I will also put a link in the show like show notes so everybody can go and watch it because it's so true it's a cumulative impact of all of this kind of stigma and bias and it's intersecting not just with size but with race and gender and what it sounds like you're saying with weathering is that it, it just sort of all piles on top of women at really vulnerable points in their life, like pregnancy and birth. And, and that's really difficult. Yeah. I think particularly with this concept of weathering, it's really important to note that among black women who are having these really horrific birth experiences in the United States, there is, it's, it's happening across socioeconomic statuses. So even women with, you know, a high, high access to resources. And what we're seeing is that they really aren't being taken seriously when they're reporting their symptoms. And so there's a lot of um, kind of medical neglect that's contributing to this. Oh gosh. Well, Serena nearly died, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she was asking for help and it did not come as quickly as was needed when she, and she was in the hospital. So, Yeah, so it's kind of the, this disregard for, you know, the voices of Black women. It's not believing Black women. It's, it's this, this very sick idea that Black women can tolerate pain more or maybe seeking attention mm. in some way. It's really, really insidious. And as I'm mm. talking about this, I'm thinking about how unethical, how it should be malpractice that we aren't researching the impact of stigma and oppression 
on people's lives and assuming that that is what is contributing to, you know, different the birth outcomes. Yeah, the birth yeah. outcomes and what we what we refer to as health or physical health overall. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's really really sick at this point. It's it's really elitist and privileged and blanket. And it's making my skin crawl as well. So you know, I mean, women in medicine are neglected, overlooked, and kind of patronized. Black women have that in spades. Like it, I'll I'll see that oppression and I'll raise it. You know, to to fifty times the level. And you know what you're saying about this strange idea that black women feel less pain. That goes all the way back to the roots of gynecology and how how because before we started recording, you were telling me about that and that that highlights just how racist this is. Yes, yeah, there was a huge. There, I mean, racism and the way we view whose bodies are believed and acceptable um, and included underscores all of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that we were talking about how the roots of gynecology, the the forefathers of the of gynecology, um, started their research by um, experimenting on black women's bodies, often without anesthesia. So we have a when black women are seeking health services, they are encountering a legacy of incredible harm and distrust that is often still being perpetrated in ways now that are never named. Yeah, aka Serena's experience. It's yeah, it's horrifying. And you're right. The um the literature that talks about risk never talks about weight stigma or you know intergenerational trauma or any of these kinds of very real impacts on the body. And it's just particularly when it comes back to people's size and risk in pregnancy, it's always dumbed down to this. Uh, increased risk is because of weight and then the the beautiful solution is of course weight loss um and then the risk will go back down to the same uh level as an always thin probably more privileged person which we don't know (laughs) no we don't know i mean it it reminds me of how deb burgard's often saying like we don't know that you know, people in larger bodies who lose weight, we can't make the assumption that they have the same bodies as someone who's always been at that that weight their whole life. That yeah, sense. the weight depressed body is yeah. not the same as somebody whose natural weight is is whatever that weight suppressed body is, and we mm-hmm. can't say that the same health status just because they weigh the same. Yeah, it seems yeah. like you know, Hillary uses this term coined this term during a talk, I think, that there we're in a crisis of imagination in, in healthcare, that we can't look at this data. Like nobody has looked at this higher risk birth outcome data in larger bodied people and said, huh, maybe there's weight stigma, that maybe the weight stigma is, is increasing the complication in these, in these mm-hmm. uh, larger bodied pregnant women and it's not their the higher body weight itself it's the stigma they've experienced often for years and years and years before they sought care for their pregnancy many Mm -hmm. have been avoiding care many are terrified to go to the doctor and tell them that they're pregnant because they know what they're going to hear and it seems in the literature that even the stuff that talked about stigma just did not have the authors did not have 
a strong enough awareness and education around this to really critically evaluate the data. That's really scary, isn't it? I mean, as you said, you did a whole, you went to a whole conference on what sounds awesome. Like how do we, how do we do the body positive thing and still manage risk? That sounds like an awesome conference topic, but to hear that you guys were the only ones who mentioned weight stigma is like, that's kind of mind blowing. That does show you like the, the, whatever the concept the medical community has about what body positivity is or what stigma is, is very surface level, not, not really considered or critical thinking. Yeah. And we have data that shows that, you know, the higher a person's BMI is, the more likely they're going to avoid medical care. Yeah. Well, because of there's huge amounts of weight stigma whenever you go near a medical person. Yes. And then when we were doing some research for this talk, we found this term coloring, um, like coloring the pregnancy, that when people go to see medical professionals at the, and they're in a higher body weight, they're warned of all these risks mm-hmm. that ha- likely more likely to happen. So instead of like there being just a 5% more chance or something like that and it being expressed that way, they talk about how the weight ne- puts them at a higher risk and then it colors the pregnancy almost like... Mm-hmm. It almost like it's like a self fulfilling prophecy. Exactly. Yeah, that's a great word for it. Yeah, oh, yeah, of course. The seeds for the problems and and the planting of the seeds increases the risk of the problems. And you know, mm-hmm. one of our recommendations in this talk, and our talk was titled "Helping Without Harming: Like Ethical Considerations in Treatment Planning." Yeah, great. Thing. You know, providers are bound by an ethic to do no harm, and I think they're doing a lot of harm when they're not getting the big picture and really, you know, understanding people's complex relationships with their bodies. And pregnancy is such a, it's such an opportunity for body appreciation and respect. And it mm-hmm. could be an entry point for people to develop a different relationship with their bodies. Uh, unfortunately, the focus on weight often keeps people you know, participating in diet culture and dieting and, and, mm-hmm. and shame and, and yeah, feeling bad about being pregnant in a larger body. Yeah. I, I really I resonate with what you said about that coloring idea of if you're told something about your pregnancy, you will, you'll believe it, especially if you're told something by someone in power who's an obstetrician or medical professional. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, yeah, and how do we, you know, enter this supportive relationship from a strength-based perspective and the belief that this person can have a healthy pregnancy and outcome. Yeah. And that there's, there's larger body people doing this all the time, having, you know, mm-hmm. healthy pregnancies and successful vaginal births and, you yeah. know, and that's another thing in the data point is we don't know if, if higher weight women have more C-sections because of the physician's weight bias and, exactly. and or do they have a higher because of the weight, you know, they're so scared of something happening that they often mm-hmm. just will do a cesarean section 
Yeah, yeah, you don't see that data. You do see that there's higher rates of seizures as BMI increases, but, yeah, you don't hear the story. You don't hear, well, this was an emergency or, you know, or this was just something that this woman was told from the very beginning that you you are a quote-unquote high-risk pregnancy. We're going to do a caesarean. I was reading a Huffington Post article before we started recording where one woman was told that her vagina was too fat to give birth. Like how can that be possible? That doesn't make any sense. But if you're told this. Well, but, you know, most vaginas know how to open. (laughs) Know how to open. If someone says to them, your body knows what to do and we're going to trust your body. But we don't do that Mm -hmm. at all with fat women. No, no. So she probably did have a cesarean. She's part of that statistic that sells the story that that this is not possible. It's only not possible if we've got the blinkers on. Yeah, Yeah. and if we skew, if the data's been skewed to make it look like Mm -hmm. there's a higher risk because physicians are uncomfortable and untrusting of people's bodies. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is kind of the midwifery model is to be to say wait a minute let's not make birth an emergency right let's let's assume that the majority of women's bodies are capable of giving birth how the woman wants and chooses to give birth and let's like center that as um the primary as the experience the majority of women will have and Mm -hmm. don't we will have other options for you know but i think that this distrust of women's bodies um is something that's kind of been a challenge in in the birth field in general for a long time and then when we look at how it trickles down to fat women in particular it's like they just get pushed to the margins immediately yeah yeah so women overall aren't qualified to deal with their own birth but yeah if you're a big woman or you know if you're a big woman of color then you know you're absolutely marginalized yeah yeah and it's, it's so is about what we think about you know all the misconceptions we have about fat people in general that somehow mm. they're not tending to their own care or uh, mm-hmm. lazy or that this they their fatness is a product of something that they're doing wrong and and if people are doing mm-hmm. that much wrong then they can't shouldn't they can't be also trusted with this and yeah. all of it is based on bias. There's no evidence, not in psychology, not, not in sociology, not in medicine. There's no evidence to say that there's some characterological issue that is associated with fatness. And yet we keep returning to it in the medical field in, an, I, in a way that we, and then we use it in a way to protect our own asses because of liability. And the whole thing is so insidious and disgusting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so self-fulfilling. There's an an Australian study just released about Australian maternity care providers, and it found that they perceived that quote unquote overweight or obese women are worse at self-management than thin women who are pregnant, and that they have um, worse attitudes towards caring for them in their pregnancies. So, this and this is recent Australian research. This this is a real thing. It's a real problem. Yeah, they're often not believing what they're doing, what they report, their eating mm-hmm. patterns, their activity patterns are often not believed mm-hmm. uh, when they're in a larger body. Yeah, 
I've had women say to me that their their providers are saying, look, you're going to get gestational diabetes, you know, you're going to have a higher risk of um, stillbirth or birth defects. And people are being absolutely terrified on top of this horrible bias that's everywhere. Yeah, and where is the, the fear of complications motivating? I'd like to see the, the data on that that's scaring mm-hmm. people encourages them to take better care of themselves and making them further hate their bodies and feel more shame about their bodies encourages self-care yeah it's so paternalistic yeah yeah i'm reminded of um paternalistic yes the monty python movie it's really old it's called the meaning of life and the first opening part of the movie is called birth and John Cleese is the doctor and there's the woman who's about to give birth in the room and all these machines he keeps bringing in all these machines and then he's got like seven interns all male who are standing around with their clipboards and and he's he's screaming he's like where's the machine that goes ping we need the machine that goes ping and and she says she says excuse me doctor what what should I do? And he goes, nothing, dear. You're not qualified. <laughs> that sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> that is paternalistic healthcare at its. I just I just never forgot that saying. But it, it is scary because you do feel quite a lot like that when it's your body in these medical places. And you know, my experience uh, wasn't impacted by weight stigma, but it was still terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing is I think that it's it's very scary. I think it's also a place in women's healthcare where the woman gets very decentered because there's a they're centering the, the baby and the fetus a lot. And so it's this element of like I need to stop I need to be centering someone else, which your women are so often conditioned to do anyway. And I'm I'm curious about the impact of that in terms of women or people that are giving birth feeling like they can, um, you know, feeling like they have the personal power needed Mm. to get through birth in a way that keeps them connected to themselves. When, when the overarching idea is that we can be instead be very dangerous as pregnant people (laughs) Mm. to, to with our own, just very human behavior. Yeah. Yeah, it's just so fascinating. There's so much research that we could be doing mm-hmm. to unpack all of this stuff that just isn't being done because it's being overlooked. And so I'm interested. So when you guys stood up at the end of this Body Positive Day where it was about being nice to the fat women so they won't be fat and have fat babies and you actually sort of delivered your stuff, how, how was that received? Um, we went in, you know, so we didn't attend the whole day because we thought if we attended the whole day, we'd be so pissed off when we got up there that it would ruin our presentation <laughs> style. We, and we went in with kind of the intention of leaving them with more questions than answers, which I think is a really positive place mm-hmm. to most healthcare providers who love to fix and have all the solutions and for them to just really be left thinking and overall the I mean the com I mean some people in that room I think were experiencing a lot of their own you know their 
because they're in larger bodies. They're sitting in this room and their bodies are being talked about. And so they were being traumatized all day. And I mean, some of them, we said a few things and they just clapped so loud during <laughs> certain parts because they were like, amen, you know, so, so some people were totally just like, finally somebody saying what needs to be said in this room. And then I think most, it was really well-received overall. We had several people come up to us afterwards. And when we got the evaluations, you know, there were a few people who definitely got guarded and their defenses on from the get-go. But, you know, I would say 80% of the feedback was really positive and really thankful for giving them a a new lens to really look at this through. Mm -hmm. Oh, that is so heartening to hear because these are mostly midwives and people in the profession. They would have gone home, you know, with their cage rattled a bit and hopefully, like you said, some questions coming up in their in their minds. Yeah, I mean, we want to create folks that feel passionate about this because it's one thing for one provider to try to change their behavior or bring that or like turn the tables on how much weight stigma is showing up in their own relationships with their own clients. But so many of these folks are working in large hospital systems where Mm. there's there's so much embedded into the system that we really want to support and create providers that can really, really start changing more than just their own practices. We need providers that are invested in changing systems and structures at this point. I think that you know, there's always a few that will be emboldened to do that. And then the rest are at the end, there were still some folks asking questions like, how do I tell people not to eat so much nicely, nicer? (laughs) Or like, how do I present the weight growth chart in a way that isn't triggering? I'm like, well, Mm -hmm. maybe present it you know it's, it's not like, maybe it's not possible yeah to, to do I, um, maybe people can't control their weight um <laughs> i think it was, that you don't yeah i did <laughs> you know, do it you know but i think that we're really lacking a lot of information in healthcare about dieting culture and dieting in general and how that impacts people's relationship with food and how that can be changed and healed over time if you know under the right circumstances and that one of the reasons their patients are gaining yeah. during the pregnancy is because their weight suppressed to begin with and they've been dieting mm-hmm. and restricting their food and all of a sudden they have permission to gain weight for the first time in their lives and they're eating, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's, there may be some backlash eating involved. There may just be increased hunger because they're pregnant, right? And like, the, I remember saying that at a, at a training we did years ago and like people were floored by that idea (laughs) people gain these you know some people gain weight rapidly in their pregnancies because they've been dieting for years Mm -hmm. yeah again there's just like a lack it's a crisis of imagination i love that phrase even look at this that you know, these providers are so indoctrinated into dieting culture that they don't even see it. Yeah, it's it's like the oxygen that you breathe. It's everywhere. It's it's permeated. Exactly. And we just don't see it. Yeah. And what you guys do is you're like professional consciousness raises and and you just kind of go in and show people the matrix and blow minds and then yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> yeah. But that's 
where, you know, I mean, in, in an hour, hour and a half talk, I don't remember exactly how much time we had. In some ways, I feel like we did our best to get out of it. We're like, okay, well, you're going to have to pay us this. And they're like, well, and we're like, well, we're not budging. And they're like, okay, we got the money. And then we're like, okay, we at this time. And they're like, well, and we're like, okay. Um, <laughs> it sometimes feels like we're being thrown to the wolves. Oh, yeah. Look, yeah, I, yeah, it would be. But uh, it's probably unfair, but that's how it feels because we know how radical what we we advocate for is and and we really own that up front in our talks oftentimes like we're here to offer a different perspective and it's probably going to be pretty different for some of you and Mm -hmm. um, and again I think you know always it's like we we just wanted that to leave them with more questions than answers so that they Mm. can curious yeah well it's just I mean a lot of the time like kind of going out there into weight-centric world and presenting Hayes anti-diet, like weight science stuff, it is really scary and it can be more comfortable to kind of sit and not, you know, just interact with each other. But it's so important to push the boundaries and the envelopes and, you know, just on the behalf of this whole idea of social justice and it's so important to get this clear idea of what weight stigma is and what stigma and trauma is into health professionals. Yeah. So, so thank you. Yeah. You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah. This, this reliance on personal responsibility rhetoric within the medical community is, is more harmful than helpful. I think at the end of the day. Yeah. It's so, yeah, it, it all kind of comes back down to this personal responsibility idea and this idea that the only quote unquote healthy way to get pregnant and have a baby is to be within that BMI quote unquote normal range it's it's such a reductionist way of looking at it. And then this kind of encouragement or, you know, downright pressure on women who are larger to become smaller either before pregnancy or during or after is so toxic, um, but it's so kind of everywhere. So I was really heartened to, to read a quote from Dr. Neil Shah. He's the uh, Associate Professor for Obstetrics, Gynecology and Reproductive Biology at Harvard Medical School, right? So pretty prestigious place. And his quote is, you never want a pregnant woman to lose weight ever because restricting calories enough to induce weight loss puts your body into starvation mode, which is really bad for mum and for bub. Yes. That should be front page news, that quote. It, It should. Because I feel like what I'm hearing is that people are investigating more and more how pregnant women can lose weight, which feels so disrespectful and counterintuitive of a process that's really natural and about growing an entirely separate human in your body mm-hmm. as its own mass. So, yeah. and that in being in a, a nourished state helps with healing and recovery and breastfeeding yes. and Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I do hear from my clients who are pregnant in larger bodies, mm-hmm. they're being told to either lose weight or to not gain any weight during their pregnancy. And that's becoming the focus of pregnancy. And like you say, it's beyond like the, the how much the woman's thriving or how the baby's going. It's like, get this focus on weight for this really weird idea that somehow 
if the weight doesn't change or if she loses weight, that, that her health will be improved. It just seems so... It seems so backwards. And also if you unpack it, it's so bizarre. Because yeah. either they're trying to capitalize on that first trimester when people when women don't feel well and can't eat, which mm. is not as health, it's part a big part of pregnancy, but not eating is not health promoting. Or they're making the assumption that women who need to lose weight were behaving in unhealthy ways with food before and are somehow gonna be <laughs> motivated by the baby to be better eaters, i.e. better people. Mm-hmm. That really, I find <laughs> incredibly disturbing. Mm. Yeah, I, I'm thinking of a client who was told by her doctor that if she didn't lose weight during her pregnancy, she wouldn't be around to see her baby grow up. Oh, my God, that's disgusting. Yeah, it's heartbreaking. And, and you know, imagine the fear that goes through you. Yeah. And And so, you know, talk about being intentioned with seeing someone like me and getting all of these messages from these units. Mm-hmm. So it's, yeah, really, really destabilizing. So I was heartened to see that quote from the Harvard dude. Yeah. I just, I just don't know why it's not front page news. I don't either. Yeah. I guess that pressure from diet culture to losing weight is always a good thing. Like regardless. Yeah. Is, I mean, is rampant. And then also, if anyone, you know, if people want funding for research these days, obesity, the money that's being like benchmarked for studies around so-called obesity is, the, you know, is a place where a lot of funding is coming right now. Yeah. Well, you know, thank you, World Health Organization, for calling obesity like the biggest threat to modern civilization since the dinosaurs or something, you know. it's really not a climate that's conducive to weight neutral thinking like or you know getting that lens of looking at it through a social justice perspective yes I wanted to like run through like it's a bit of a technical aspect I guess because um just to get it out there that because women are always told that the risks are high like you're a high risk pregnancy if you're in a larger body and so just to I mean I'm not I'm not gonna like labor and sweat too much over exact statistics or anything like that but I just wanted to have a chat with you guys about the complexity of this I mean we've talked about how weight stigma does impact on increased risk and I think that that's not being talked about like you said but the actual when you look at the actual risks of things like maybe birth defects or stillbirths they do a bit of sometimes statistical buggery like they say you know you've got like a 12 times increased risk of having a stillbirth but what you know, that's a bit of statistical statistical wankery because the actual risks of anything like that happening is really low anyway. And if you get an increased risk on something that's really low anyway, and then report it in a certain way, it sounds really scary. But what it really means in plain English is that like more than 90% of women are gonna have perfectly okay live births. Uh, with no birth defects, so many and many fat women are going to give birth, and everything is going to be fine. Many fat women are going to be pregnant and not get just gestational diabetes. But the way the statistics are presented, it's high risk. You've got a you know this much multiplied risk, and, and it scares people. And we can forget that actually most of the time everything's okay. Yes, yes, I appreciate you bringing that. 
wankery. I love that term. <laughs> Yeah, I remember reading about that and that how the risk in and of itself is low to begin with, but the way they state the risk makes it sound like it's so much worse. Yeah, like one headline was saying overweight pregnancy increases risk of birth defects. The study showed that birth defects occur in about 3.4% of people in that so-called 18 to 25 BMI, so-called normal BMI. And then overweight, three point five percent. Everybody get concerned. <laughs> oh my god! Wankers, wankers, absolute wankers. Rolling for a headline. Uh huh. And then, and it did divide into like. I hate these terms, but like obese class one, obese class two, obese class three, and it did go up, right? But I'm talking from 3.4% in normal weight BMI people to at the very highest obese class three, which I think is like BMI 45 and above, I think, or it could even be 50 and above, I'm not sure, but 4.7%. So we're talking about an an actual increase in risk of 1.3%. From the smallest people to the biggest people on the planet. 1.3%. Yeah. And that's an entire large percentage of people that present themselves as pregnant shittier because (laughs) of that. Uh Uh-huh. And yeah, and so but you know, even with this like really shitty finding. The article concludes by saying efforts should be encouraged to reduce adiposity in those with BMI above normal range. Are you kidding? We're obsessed. obsessed. So we want to do. We want <laughs> people to reduce their risk by one point five percent. That's the thing. We are more concerned about these statistical interpretations and what they might mean, instead of how we're interacting with the person sitting directly in front of in front of us that's coming for us for to support them in their pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we are more likely to pay attention to our fears and what we've been told to be afraid of as providers than centering the relationship with that person that's sitting in front of you as an individual with an mm-hmm. individual experience and a very specific body story that's just theirs and a very very you know individual lived experience. Yeah, it's not even there. This is the opposite of patient-centered care. This is like this paper literally says if a person fits into a slightly higher risk category, make them not exist anymore. Then that's weird. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Make them not exist anymore. Rather than, you know what? Globally, we're all getting bigger and more and more pregnant women are getting larger and being larger when they give birth. And so let's look after them. But that seems, how, how come that's radical? I don't understand. Right. I'm, I keep thinking this, so I'm going to say it. As it. I mean, I just keep thinking about malpractice litigation and how I like, I'm curious about like countries where they don't have such a litigious society. Mm. As, are the physicians as pathologizing as in countries that aren't as litigious? Because mm-hmm. not everyone 
lives in a litigious society, but we know in America particularly that, I mean, doctors pay big bucks for malpractice insurance and like having your care, and I'm sure most providers wouldn't say it, they would say it's about healthy outcomes and our patients not dying. And yet at the end of the day, I I think it's about not being sued. Yeah. <laughs> Uh huh. I do think that is that definitely comes into it, and and it's about in, in the hospitals as well not being sued. Yeah, it's more. I mean, we're calling a lot of this stuff ethics, and it's not ethics; it's risk management, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and it's refusing to run the risks. Yeah, yeah. Even though hospitals, by definition, are supposed to be like places you go when you're feeling risky, like maybe bleeding to death or having a heart attack. Yeah. Kind of the name of the game in the hospital. <laughs> here in um, here in Australia, a lot of people live, you know, rural and remote. You know, it's a big country with big distances and not as densely populated as the US. And women who are above a certain BMI and who are pregnant are being told um, are being refused care, like refused to give birth at the local hospitals and flown to the cities. To, oh. to give birth because they're being told that they're, they're too high risk to go ahead with uh, a birth in their hometown. And yet, like, women are told that they shouldn't fly after a certain point in their pregnancy, but they're willing, <laughs> they're willing to put them on planes and risk that over having a vaginal birth or a cesarean section in a hospital locally <laughs> because, they, because they're looking at their, their fat bodies and saying... I see your body and thus I see risk. It's just a really horrible system, isn't it? Of It just reinforces shame. And I know more than one client who is too afraid to get pregnant and be placed in that dreaded category and face all of the shame of being the, you know, when you think about it, it's a, it's a small town and, and you're being faced with this shame of leaving the town because your body's too big and dangerous. Yeah, being yeah. to a bigger city for your birth. This is happening to um, Indigenous people in uh, in particular, and that you know, just the importance of community and family when you give birth. Yeah, and, and tradition and you know mm-hmm. choice. Yeah. So much and body autonomy, right? I thought women. I thought this whole pregnancy thing was supposed to be about choice. Mm. Yeah, we're not qualified, dear. <laughs> I think in the byline of this podcast, you, you it need, there needs to be a um, face palm. <laughs> I just feel like I keep hanging my head and putting. My, I know. My, my I know. I know. It's too early in the day for me to have a wine, but my God, it's um. <laughs> serenity now yeah it's really because it does just reveal all the layers of oppression and disempowerment that we've been drowned in all of our lives and it's impacting on larger women but it impacts on all of us this this really does need to change yeah fact of women having now to fear uh, you know, seeking support and preg- when they're ju- when they're pregnant, mm. I'm really concerned about how this continues to 
I don't know. I guess it just, it just continues the same cycle of being, not having any access to power around our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. And then when we do come to the attention of statistics, it looks, it looks bad because it kind of is. So what can we do if people are listening to this, who are in larger bodies, who are looking to get pregnant or who are pregnant and has suffering from some really shitty John Cleese style healthcare, what can we do? Yeah, I mean, I think um, the more we've internalized weight stigma, the more, the less likely a person is to advocate for themselves and their access to respectful care free of weight bias and stigma. So if you're listening, is to know that society is messed up and your body is not. <laughs> Our medical providers have been given a biased education and are often in participating in diet culture and have internalized their own fat phobia that they're dealing with when they show up, you know, when people show up in their offices. Mm. And this is a systemic problem. This is not about your body. That's the first thing I would say. That's that your beautiful. Body, you know, that your body can can carry a pregnancy that People in all kinds of bodies carry healthy babies to term, have good birth outcomes, and to, and that your belief in your ability to have a healthy pregnancy and birth is part of what helps you have a healthy pregnancy and birth, and that finding a provider that really believes in your body's ability, if you, you know, I realize some people may not have access to that in small communities. Yeah. If, you know... If one doctor can't hold that for you, maybe seeing if somebody else can. What are your thoughts? I'm thinking about someone who lives in Portland here with us named Shiloh George, who is an activist, an advocate around body sovereignty, and how Shiloh sends some or brings in a statement to new practitioners that say what her boundaries are and what she expects, really in a very straightforward way. And that that might be something to consider and that if the doctor can't agree to your boundaries and some of the boundaries might be, I've dieted and had disordered eating and I, and if you give me nutrition information, it may be very triggering for me and cause worse outcomes than me just continuing to eat how I eat um, mm. you know, or ask permission before you talk to me about nutrition or I don't want to be weighed and if you must weigh me it needs to be a blind weight and it better not show up on any paperwork you give me either I love that yeah you know and that we instead of ex- waiting for this information to trickle down to healthcare providers I think right now we're in a stage where we have to start um saying what our boundaries and limits are and that mm-hmm. is a way of claiming our power and our body sovereignty and even when we're interacting in medical systems I that um, I've learned a lot from Shiloh around her own self-advocacy, and I think that that can have a big impact. That's huge. Yeah, you know, if we just come in and say what our boundaries are, if the doctor can't handle it, then you have a lot of information about yeah. what you're able to be a provider you can use. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As soon as we put our bodies, you know in the treatment room with a provider, we need to make sure as far as we can, as much as we can, that we're safe. Yeah. And that we feel like the person hears us and that we can be uh, empowered 
and not disempowered in that moment. Yes. Yeah. And it feels important to say that if you do have a complication, that it doesn't mean that you're a bad person or you're a bad mother. No. No. Complications happen and there's things we can do to be proactive and they still happen. They, yeah, yeah. The best we can. I'm really glad you brought that one up, actually. If you do have a complication, particularly the gestational diabetes thing, like I guess um, it it is more common. Again, not hugely common. More than 90% of women will, in larger bodies, won't get gestational diabetes. But if you do, you don't have to go on a diet. You, You don't have to immediately do the restricting kind of thing. Find a non-diet health provider who can help you with gestational diabetes care and, you know, the the blend of the intuitive eating with diabetes stuff. Like uh, Megret Fletcher does some amazing stuff. Yeah. I'm also going to put up a link um, to a wonderful Facebook group that I found, which is Pregnancy Support for People in Larger Bodies, which is it looks like it's full of activists. And, um, yeah, women, you know, sharing their stories of putting up boundaries with healthcare providers and, and having wins. And you can obviously, you know, then network and find people that might be able to help you if, if your provider's just not getting it. Yes. Yeah. I'm feeling, I'm feeling slightly better now. (laughs) (laughs) We're glad it's the end of the day. We can go have a glass of wine. Yeah. You need to have a toast to me. <laughs> we will, we will. Knowing, knowing that at breakfast time tomorrow, your time, I will be having a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah. Perfect. And toasting you guys. Thank you so much for coming on. Like, honestly, this, this topic has been a long time coming. Lots of people have written in and asked to, to talk about this. And I couldn't think of people on the planet that I'd rather have that conversation then with you, you two, because you're, the lens that you talk about this stuff through is so important and so unexamined. So thank you. I'm sure lots of people listening have got a lot of their questions happening and mine's blown, hopefully, as much as mine has been. Oh, well, thank you, Louise. It's been nice to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for having us and for making space for this topic, which is so is not talked about nearly enough. Even. No. Yes. No, no. And you do, so you guys talk on so many different um, arenas and I'm going to, is it okay if I mention the TED Talk that you guys are doing? Yeah, yeah. please do. Yeah. <laughs> anticipating and preparing for this. Yeah. yeah, but I'm so, I mean, like I, I can't imagine people spreading this message as beautifully as you guys do on the TED stage. I can't wait to see it happen. Um, do you know any details or shall we just pop it up on the show notes when the episode comes out? It should be available by the end of February, uh, recording at mid-February. And so we're anticipating that it will be available to watch by the end of February. Yeah. Yeah. Such an important conversation. So uh, I, I will put that link in the show notes and uh, I know you guys are going to absolutely rock it. So thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Wow, what a wonderful conversation. I can't thank uh, Hilary and Dana enough for coming on and talking about such a wonderful topic in such, it's just, I love their perspective on all of this. So just words can't express, so thank you. I hope that's given everyone a lot to think about. I know it stuck with me for several days after we recorded. 
um, there's a lot of work to do, isn't there, in changing how we treat this whole subject. But there's also a lot of hope because with people like this on the planet being invited to do things like TED Talks, how awesome is that? So I was hoping to have the details of the TED Talk for you by the time we went to air, but unfortunately it doesn't seem to be up as, as of yet. Um, but please go and find out lots more about Hillary and Dana. Their website is benourished.org or you can look at um, their Facebook page at PDX. So updates there about the upcoming TED stuff, TED Talk stuff, will, of course, be posted there. Well, that brings us to the end of another show. Thank you, everyone, for all of your messages of warmth and support and outrage and anger. If there is something that you want me to talk about on this podcast that's really getting up your nose, please don't hesitate to send me an email at louise at untrapped.com.au because I can't wait to get irate with you. Okay, so that's it for another week. I look forward to bringing you another fresh heap of steaming diet culture bullshit in a couple of weeks' time. In the meantime, look after yourselves and remember to trust no one, think critically, push back against diet culture, untrap from the crap.